Welcome to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the community outreach archivist at Emory University Library's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Gabrielle Dudley, Instruction Archivist at Rose Library. Gabrielle, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lolita. I'm so excited. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do at the Rose? Yeah, so um, I'm the instruction archivist. Um, That's technically my title, Uh, but I like to think of myself as a faculty coach and a student advocate. Um, I am lucky to work uh, with my colleague Jacqueline Reed, who's our instruction specialist, and then also with a team of graduate students. And I think we all sort of embody this idea of being a faculty coach and a student advocate. Um, But I get to work with faculty um, across uh, the college to design meaningful engagements with the archives uh, for their students. So it could be faculty that are veterans and know a lot about doing research in archives, but maybe don't know as much about uh, teaching with archives. So it's really great that I'm the person that gets to introduce that to them um, or help them work on that skill. And then for students, I like to think of myself um, as an advocate for them. And I try to understand like what they need, um, ways that we can improve the engagement with the archives. Um, And I want to just really make sure that the way that we are teaching with um, the archives or with special collections um, changes just as much as the students do. So if there's changes in technology or the way that they're approaching things, um, the way that they're thinking might change. um, I want to make sure that the archives um, adjust to that. And so outside of sort of how I think about my title, I really feel like I have the best job in Rose Library probably everybody will tell you that, but don't believe them. My job is actually the best job in Rose Library Um, because I get to work with people and the materials. So I get to um, like look at a faculty syllabi and say like, oh, wow, they're doing like something really amazing with um, what you might think of as a dull topic, but the faculty member is doing something really amazing with it. And I get to look in our collections and say, what do we have that matches this? Sometimes it's like spot on. Other times it might take a little bit of imagination. And so I sort of curate every class that comes in. Um, Me and Jacqueline and um, our graduate students, we are sort of able to be sort of curators in a way um, for these classes. We get to, uh, like, we have a captive audience. So when I mean captive, I mean, let's not um, tell everyone, but it's because, you know, they're getting a grade for the class. But I feel like every time we have such a captive audience that like wants to learn about archives. And then also we are around these materials every day. You know, we're always with them. We talk, you know, I might talk with you, Lolita, or I might talk with other people about um, the things that are in our collections. But when we can get 25 students in a class to talk about these things, that's a really amazing experience. And um, spoiler alert, Emory students have a lot to say about a lot of things. And so it just makes like every class that we do like really, really special. Um, I forget that like I'm doing a job because it's it's so, um, so fun sometimes. Tell me, how has that changed or enhanced how you approach the 2020 academic year? I think one of the things that um, was most important is to let faculty and students know 
Even though the world has shifted and changed, Rose Library is still here for you. I'm still able to help to coach faculty, and I'm still here to be an advocate for students. So I think um, that luckily Jacqueline and I were able to really um, make a smooth transition of thinking about how we could work with faculty in a new way. We did a lot of scanning of materials in our collections and making them available uh, to faculty through uh, mostly their their Canvas site. And so we've actually been able to have really, really rich instruction sessions virtually. Um, who knew that all it took was allowing students to be like in their own environment for them to like really open up. I think Jacqueline and I both have like gotten such really great questions from students and had really great interactions, so much so that um, I don't think I've sent as many emails, follow-up emails to students <laughs> as I have uh, this academic year because students have said such really great things in class that I wasn't able to answer right away. So like following up with them um, and doing that thing, you know, things like that. I just, it's been a really rich time for learning um, about the work that we do, um, the faculty and students that we serve, but then also ourselves and like our processes. So I think it's been really rich and I'm looking forward to post-pandemic, like putting some of the great things that we've learned um, in place. What brought you to the archives? What career path did you take to work in the archives? Okay, so this is kind of a funny story. Um, my parents told me that I would make a really great teacher. Um, and I was like, nope. I have been rounding up like my cousins, my baby dolls, my stuffed animals like for years, for years. And I would like teach them about black history and like this novel that I just read. And, you know, I would be asking oh. them like the tough questions <laughs> and doing that type of thing. And so I actually went to college um, on a teaching scholarship. And I knew that I like loved young people and the idea of learning and sharing. Um, but I very quickly learned that I was not at all enthused by having to like teach students like materials for a standardized test. And so mm -hmm. that like really turned me off. And I was like, parents, of course, you're plain wrong. Like, nope, I don't want to be a teacher. <laughs> and I thought like, I'll be a college professor instead. And I'll just do all this research and I'll rewrite textbooks, you know. Um, so I applied to PhD programs um, my senior year of college. And um, even though I got into some of those programs, it just wasn't where my heart was leading me. So I took uh, a year off before I went to graduate schools just to think about like what it was that um, I really wanted to do and think about the things that brought me joy. And I realized I really did want to stay involved in the learning process. Um, and so simultaneously, I found like a public history program at the University of South Carolina. And I was really excited about what it offered. It was like the opportunity to like talk with people about history and literature. So it was like the things I love, like history and literature, but also like talking, another thing that I love. <laughs> so um, about halfway through my public history program, I realized that there were lots of benefits um, of having a library science degree. So I entered um, what was then a dual degree program. And so I guess in a way, I'm a teacher uh, after all. So my parents were like not completely wrong. Um, and so, you know, I'm just doing it in a way that I really didn't think that was possible um, as an undergraduate student. Um, so thanks, mama and daddy. <laughs> Moms and dads, they know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, um, reminds me of Superman and his father giving him like the whole like experience of like, you know, you will be great, Kyle. So, you know, things like that. I have a question though. 
for um, another one for our listeners too, and um, that maybe you can enlighten. But instruction, teaching, what what do you need to be a good instructor, a good teacher? What what are those skills that you need to have? I think you probably need to be a good learner first. Um, I think like people learn in uh, many, many different ways. Um, And I'm someone that depending on the day, I learn in a very different way. So I think um, just understanding that people learn um, differently. You also need to like, I think, be very excited about the subject there have been students I've seen that are just like, oh, you know, I was taking this class because I needed extra credit or something like that. But because of the energy of the the faculty member, they were like on fire. So I think it really um, means just like understanding like what the learning experience would be like, but also like really bringing lots of energy to whatever you're doing. And are there any particular interactions with students that have like stood out to you recently? Students are my favorite. Like they are, I love young people and like students are just, they always have um, like the best ideas. I was doing a class that was actually virtual for a creative writing uh, professor. I showed students the Born Digital Archive of Lucille Clifton. And, you know, students were, it's really interesting because students are, when we show them letters that are like physical and paper, they're like, oh, okay, cool. But then when you start showing them um, writers' emails, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-mm. Like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And it's because <laughs> that's the process that they have. So when I was showing them this, they were like, how are you getting these? And I'm like, well, you know, telling them about the process that digital archivists go through and like, you know, things are deleted, but not really deleted from your computer. And they were just like stunned in the class. And I always think that's just such a funny thing Um, because, you know, people of a certain generation remember like writing letters or you probably had a kindergarten pen pal or that type of thing. And like everything is digital with most of these students. So they were just like, no, uh -uh, you cannot be like taking people's email so that's always a funny a funny thing that happens and there's so much like information like you're right like like thinking about it because in February February is Valentine's Day and in elementary school you would get these little hearts that people have like these handwritten things and there's like I miss those right I was thinking about that I was walking through the store like I, I I like that like you could tell somebody you like them without getting to but you could and a little heart-shaped candy and so now like thinking about that and and the authors and the other people that we have in our collections who um are of now a new generation right where we're digital and Mm -hmm. and just like accessing that and also thinking about more than emails your social media presence Oh, yeah. And, and getting that access and, and like thinking about or have you thought about, which I'm sure you have, like, how do we teach with that? Like, like understanding that in the archive and, and using that in instruction. Yeah. Like, actually, the social media thing more so than like the emails, like really scares me because I am a very private person and like private on social media and so much so that I like don't get on it as much. So I probably don't want to think about the days of like when people are going through every tweet and holding you accountable. (laughs) (laughs) Holding you accountable. But I do think like we have to, when we're talking to students about things like social media, 
um, let's say in 20 years, we have to think about, you know, when writers are sitting down, you know, oftentimes they're intentional um, about what they're writing or what they're doing. And even when we have something written on like toilet paper or on the back of a receipt or something like that, it's still like, I need to get this thing out. And I don't know that um, social media like performs in that same way. Like, I just remember the early days of Twitter. It was like, I think it used to have a question like, how are you feeling or what are you doing? And it would just be like sitting on the couch eating pizza. And it's like, I don't want that to be like my legacy. (laughs) Someone goes back and looks at that tweet. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, but definitely as a um, instructor and as an instruction archivist, it's definitely something um, that I need to be thinking about. So thank you, Lolita, for adding something else to the list. You are welcome. And I also <laughs> want to talk, um, go back a little bit where you're talking about the curation and you're talking about instruction. You are also a curator of exhibitions. And there's one that you did that also kind of rallies around the point of writers and and their um, information. And could you talk to us about the She Gathers Me exhibit? Yeah, so um, so the She Gathers Me ex- exhibition um, is focused on Black women writers and the connections that they have that um, we can see in the archives, those either personal or professional connections. And um, I was really sort of surprised by these connections um, that I could see. And these are connections that you see outside of their published works. But that actually came from... Um, the work that I do in Rose Library, I realized that I'm I'm personally interested in Black women writers. And as I was preparing for different classes, I was like, wow, these women are really having these connections and they have something to say that like hasn't been studied before in this way. And so really that exhibition was an inspiration of the materials that I had been showing to students since I got here, since I got, you know, came to Emory, those were materials that I have been sharing. So it was just really nice to sort of have those things culminate um, in an exhibition. But as much as I was a curator of it, um, you know, I would say that um, the undergraduate students and graduate students that have been in those classes um, and faculty that have actually been um, teaching them were really, you know, sort of in a way like these uh, co-curators for me because, you know, that those ideas Uh, spun from those classes. And who were some of the people that were that or were there people in there as you were digging through um, some of the writers that were inspirations to you uh, before you like had access to their papers or that inspired you even as you're looking through the papers? Yeah. So, I mean, I was a huge fan of uh, both Lucille Clifton and Alice Walker before I ever started working here at Emory. And I thought like, wow, will I really be able to like go through these women's papers? Like, wow, this is like an amazing experience. Like, and not even just from the perspective of a archivist, but like as a reader thinking about like how wonderful that was. And so one of the things that I definitely wanted to make sure that came through with that exhibition, especially was showing those like connections between these writers, but also showing like their humanity. Um, It was really refreshing, I feel like, to see that uh, Lucille Clifton was also like a young Black woman just like me. And she was going through a lot of um, those, some of the same things that I was, you know, have been going through. And so that was really nice to see. And I wanted to make sure that like readers that had a similar experience or um, a similar connection like me to these writers would uh, get to witness that um, as well, because I get to see it, you know, on a daily basis. Almost. 
Taking that vein and moving further, I'd like to know um, if you can answer this question. This is a question I always ask everyone. Why are archives important? So, you know, this is a this question I think is one that's really important, but I think it's one that's really tough. So, you know, I think I believe the archives are important for like preservation and discovery and for all of those great reasons, but I do think personally, I believe that archives are like important for as important for like what is there as much as what's not there. So, I think coming from um uh Black culture and Black people, like, you know, our stories have not always been told very fully through the archives. And sometimes a testament of um, us is like what's there and often not written from our perspective, but also what gets us wondering about the things that aren't there and like what would have happened if archives had been inclusive from the beginning. And then thinking about being a Black woman and thinking about like, well, wow, there are some black men's stories there, but there are not a lot of black women's stories there. So like um, using that as a way to say, hey, we don't ever want to be in a place again where black women's voices and stories are not like recognized and aren't in the archives. So to me, I think archives are important so that we don't ever go back to that place. Um, So it's really, I think, important for us to have a look back to say, like, who wasn't represented and what are the ways that, you know, as a profession, we didn't do the right thing and how we can move forward to say, let's capture these voices that haven't always um, been the ones that have risen to the top. And are there items in our collection? I know you mentioned Lucille Clifton and and Alice Walker, but are there other items in the collection that, that you feel like it's, it's so important to have like that story, like we're thankful that we have this collection, this piece of item, uh, an item, or is there anything that you can, you can think of? Well, there's so many things um, that are in the collection, um, but one of the the items that I really love, and it might be because I, it was one of the first things that I saw when I came um, to Emory. We have the papers of a a woman. Her name is Mommy Wade Avant, and she was a fortune teller. But, you know, that's on the surface. You see her crystal ball and you see these spells that she has. But as you look into the collection, she was like heavily involved in the church. And so it made me think like, wow, we're like her church members, the people that... um, were her clients on the fortune telling business or did she like keep it on the down low? I was, you know, it's, so it raised a lot of questions for me, but I love that collection because it just reminds us that like people are multifaceted and people can be multiple things at one time. Um, And I think so often with history or whatever, we want people to like be this like one narrative or this story is linear, but like she is a figure that I feel like always complicates my understanding of of like what archives can do because on one hand we market her or people want to look at her for her fortune telling, but like to really understand, you have to um, 
really look at the whole, the collection as a whole and see um, the things that she has from her church or actually read the spells and see how um, as much as she's telling you to throw salt over your shoulders, she's telling you to read a scripture from the Bible. So um, I, I just, I just love that collection because I just think it really does show the power of archives to sometimes like fully humanize a person. And I think that's what I admire most about the way that you do instruction is that you uh, create the holist picture that you can possible with the items that you have when you're educating um, um, students and, and faculty, not only about the collections, but ab about the people behind the collections as well. Yeah. And I think that's the only way to like truly do this job well is to show them that like multiple perspectives are always in something, whether, you know, this is a cause that you can believe in or one that you're like, Oof, I just want to ignore that history. There's always like multiple sides to that. And so when we're showing things about like let's take the civil rights struggle in Atlanta, for instance, while we're showing like uh, Atlanta, the city of Atlanta saying that they're the city too busy to hate, we want to show like the KKK marching down Forsyth Street. And we want to show this, you know, um, students, a part of the Atlanta student movement um, that we're, we're doing advocacy work and we're doing, you know, marching and all of those types of things. We want to show that, like, <laughs> there's not a single story because I do think if you only look at, like, the official record of what the city of Atlanta has said, they're going to say we were the city too busy to hate. And if you go away um, from that sort of just only believing that one narrative, you've done yourself a disservice. So I think that's where the archive, um, an archive that is... Um, intentional, um, you can really see that, you know, there are multiple uh, things and sides to one story. Multiple is is very adequate. Like, I was just looking at um, something recently, and I realized that um, it was about the Wilmington riots that happened in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't learn about those until I actually worked in an archive in North Carolina. Like I was never taught this and doing a K through 12 instruction for um, a group of kids in the county over, I learned about the Atlanta race riots, mm -hmm. which again, I didn't know about it. And so I brought it to their attention to kind of like show them like what, and you know, the, the fact that they're not even an hour away from Atlanta in a history class, they're not being taught about this either. Mm -hmm. There's so much history uh, that I've learned working in archives that I wish growing or or actually not only just growing up through K through 12, but in my college career, mm -hmm. that I'd had that connection that you as an instruction archivist have with educate with professors because I've lost so much history, it feels like, or I haven't learned as much history as I've learned just working in the archive. Yeah, and I think that the archive luckily you know, helps us to not see that single story because we would only say like, okay, they had to be connected to this great black man that was talking about nonviolence for them to be important. But it's like, hey, no, let's look over here and see what black club women were doing in Southwest Atlanta and how they like helped to change like literacy in the city. Like, you know, they're there are other ways of looking at things. And I think, unfortunately, that, you know, going back to sort of what I said earlier about like my career path, I thought like, oh, I want to be one of these people that writes textbooks. And it was like, no, well, actually, 
I don't want to tell that single story. I, I want to be a part of something that is actually like opening it up to more voices and more possibilities than just like saying these are the only people that are important or the only stories that are important um, in this particular period. And so that also raises another question, and I'll phrase it in two different ways with the concept of misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Misconceptions about archives and misconceptions about the job of archives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like things that either you've come across or things that uh, maybe before you got into the career as an instruction archivist uh, that you were told or saw, then when you got into actually doing the job that you realized, oh, well, these were just wrong or things that I were taught wrong. You know, that's a good segment. Things I was I was taught incorrectly about. <laughs> I love it. Um, So this question is a really good one, and it's reminding me about why archives are important. And, you know, I said that archives are important for what's there, but also like for what's not there. One of the misconceptions I think happens around archives is like, if it wasn't in, if it's not in the archives, you can't find in the archives, then like it didn't happen. And I think we have to like really investigate um, and interrogate like, what is the story? Why didn't it, why is it possible that it didn't make it into the archive? Or in some cases, it could have made it into the archive and it just wasn't seen as um as important. Or sometimes it could be in the archive, it's just not where you like are looking or or think it might be. So it's just like, you know, this idea that like if it's not if there's not an official record on it, if you know, and it's not signed by the governor, then therefore it did not happen. And I um, think that's like the power of uh, archives and special collections that have like family records and just the average person, as much as I love like the great writers and the great like thinkers of the day, like I also think that it's really important for us to just realize who's the average person that might be in my hometown of Bessemer, Alabama. Like, who are those people and um, what what are they thinking about? Because if we actually look at archives, that my whole hometown might be absent, but that didn't mean that we didn't, we didn't live and we, you know, didn't do things in that town. So I just think like relying on the archive alone, even as an archivist, I think, um, I think is a, is a mistake. Agree. Agree. There's so much, um, that's in people's basements. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, and, you know, as as archivists always talk about this too, um, people will say, like, when they come into the archives, they discover things. And that's not the case. When we get items, we can process them and we can have them available, but we don't have, a, a lot of times, every single item processed. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a hidden gem in there. That's why that's why reading rooms are important and having access to them um, or access to the material is so important. And that's the fun part. I know it can sometimes be frustrating when you're like looking for that like diamond in the rough, but like that's the fun part, being able to sort of do uh, that discovery piece on your own and sometimes educate the archives about what they have. Like I think, you know, in terms of thinking about a misconception, it's like we know every single thing that's in the collection. That's not true. Sometimes we have people in the reading room that come in and like educate us on what's in the collection or, you know, um, what we're trying to do is provide access, physical access to the materials. And sometimes they have to like let us know about the things that are in there or sometimes like a deeper significance or meaning of the materials that are in there. So I think um, 
people shouldn't necessarily like think the archive has all the answers. Sometimes they can definitely um, offer something to the archive. So now that you've given up our biggest secret that we don't know everything. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. That's that's one of the things like we're we're supposed to know every single thing, Gabrielle. You can't tell people that we, <laughs> that we don't. Oh, you're giving away all the secrets. <laughs> so besides that little caveat, um, <laughs> what would you tell someone who wanted to be an instruction archivist? I think the advice that I'd have for an aspiring archivist is that um, though they might come into the profession for their passion for history or literature or something else, it's not going to sustain you. Um, So as a Black woman, I had so much ambition coming into this profession about how I was going to change the narrative around Black people um, and how I was going to promote all of these materials in our collections and people are just going to flock to it. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that you know some of that has happened um, in some regards. And I do believe that like, I I feel like I've helped people to make like more meaningful connections um, to the archives. Um, And it's been, I feel like I've done really amazing and really impactful work in the time that I've been in the profession. But I have a, because I have a passion for the work, it's really personal. So for this aspiring archivist, like you'll take work home with you and you'll dream about it and that's fine. But you also have to take care of yourself too. Um, and I think being an instruction archivist, I was work I, I work with materials that represent the past, but sometimes it feels like that past is present because of some of the like current issues and themes that are happening like around the country or around the world. And it's just reminding me of um, during the 2016 election and its aftermath, many faculty here at Emory taught classes that related to the current situation in the country and, and trying to help students contextualize it. And so I really had to confront materials that, you know, might have been 100, 150, 50 years old that seemed past, but they were racist, they were sexist, they were homophobic, and, you know, so many other things that were offensive to me. And so those days <laughs> and my work as an archivist was so exhausting. And mm-hmm. my passion didn't ex- didn't sustain me on those days. It did yeah. not. And so looking back, I'm proud of the work that I did, but I'm not so proud of how I didn't take care of myself um, during that time. So advice, aspiring archivists, be passionate, but also take good care of yourself. Behind the Archives is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Gabrielle Dudley and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Katherine Fisher, head of Digital Archives for Rose Library. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu. And follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds. 